Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's the 3rd of August 23, it's episode 93, and today we're thinking about a world without emotions. So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Um, we're thinking about emotions today and um, about how we are. We seem to be living in a world which doesn't really have any. Um, so that's what we're going to be thinking about. It's just something which I've been thinking about over the last uh, few days. Um, something which I've um, sort of talked a little bit about on the podcast before, but not really focused on. Um, but this is going to have to be a fairly quick one because in about half an hour or so, I'm going to have to um, head off to take my daughter uh, somewhere to give her a lift somewhere. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, just dive straight into it. We're going to look at one or two um, bits of news and articles and things that have been um, that have been uh, that I've seen this week, and then um, I'm going to just go into the main section. And I don't think we'll finish off with a Bible sort of reflection at the end because um, uh, there's there's actually quite a bit of that in the main section as well. Um, so just one or two things to to think about. So uh, I say things to think about, you know, things that I've seen, which you might be interested in. First thing on Twitter, this is found via, well, it's not Twitter anymore. It's actually X, isn't it? Elon Musk has changed it. Um, I'm not sure I like that. I'm just going to call it Twitter. But there we go. Um, there's a quote from Arthur Schopenhauer, the, uh, the philosopher. And um, he says, this is... Um, Arthur Schopenhauer on avoiding the current thing. And I thought this, there's a lot of wisdom in this. Let me quote you. The art of not reading is a very important one. It consists in not taking an interest in whatever may be engaging the attention of the general public at any particular time. When some political or ecclesiastical pamphlet or novel or poem is making a great commotion, you should remember that he who writes for fools always finds a large public. A precondition for reading good books is not reading bad ones, for life is short. I really like that. Uh, life is short, just dedicate yourself to reading the good stuff. And uh, I think that's actually a really helpful um, bit of advice, really, that, you know, don't waste your time on reading, you know, bad stuff, but just read the good stuff, read stuff which is going to be helpful uh, to you and cause you to think. And that doesn't mean don't engage with anything. No, but um, we do need to engage. But actually, you know, find the people who have wisdom, find the, the authors and don't just read new stuff, read old stuff. I find I benefit far more, actually, very often from books which are written, you know, years ago than I do from the, the current thing. So, yeah, I thought that was a really good bit of advice. Um, second interesting thing, um, Jamie Jenkins or Stats Jamie on Twitter uh, said something really um, interesting about net zero and again this is all stuff that we've known about for years but he said um, between 2018 and 2019 China increased on top of their emissions more than the UK does in a year. They did the same in 2020 and again in 2021. So in three years they have added more than three United Kingdom's worth of emissions to the world. Think about that. In three years, they've added more than three United Kingdom's worth of emissions to the world. And yet we are pursuing net zero. It's just baffling in its stupidity, isn't it? Really, the way that our elites, our politicians think that net zero is, you know, going to be our saviour. Where in China are merrily adding three UK's worth to the world over the last 
three years and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's incredible. It's just ludicrous, really, to think that this is, you know, net zero is a goal which is actually worthwhile making us poorer and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I just thought that it's, it's just one of those statistics. I know that I've criticised net zero in the past and all the climate change stuff, um, but that's just one of those statistics that put it all into perspective for me. Uh, the final thing that I wanted to mention was a really interesting article from Panda Uncut, um, and it was written by Chris Waldberger. Um, so, you know, Panda, they're the organisation Pandemic Data and Analysis, which I, I think they're based in South Africa. But they, um, uh, this article is called The People Will Not Save Us. Perhaps we need Machiavellian's, Machiavelli's Lions. Are the people sovereign in the democracy? Published on July the 28th. I thought this was a really interesting article. You know, Panda have been really good at looking at the data through the, um, well, I say through the pandemic. I'm not calling it that anymore, but uh, through COVID. But they have, uh, this article is looking more at democracy and how um, one of, it's sort of this elite theory of democracy, which is that um, democracy is corruptible you know that the people aren't really sovereign but that the people are fed things by the elites they're fed things by the media they are misled and and so on and and i think that was a really helpful thing to remember that we cannot rely on democracy to do the right thing because people can be misled people can be uh, corrupted um so um yeah i thought that was helpful but let me just quote you from one of the the final points that he makes about uh, what, what lessons to take from this. Let me just quote this paragraph here. Even for those who disdain the notion of the inevitability of elitism, or those who believe that democracy can be restored within the present constitutional orders, it is necessary that this res restoration be led, led by foxes and lions who, in essence, offer themselves as counter-elites. These foxes will need to present to the ruled class a new formula and a new moral unity. In so doing, they must work with lions waiting to be mobilised, be they disaffected industrialists looking to overthrow the regime of ESG and stakeholder capitalism, military leaders who oppose aggressive NATO globalism, or church leaders disgusted by the woke capture of their faith communities. There is only one formula that will work for these lions and the independent middle, a formula of decentralisation a repudiation of the Babel-like structures of globalism that seek to homogenise the world in a technocratic post-political order. Only foxes who speak this language will be heard by lions, by members of the middle, and indeed by the significant number of all non-elites desperate for change and relief from the totalising status quo. So, in other words, what we need is new leaders and people who are actually set themselves up, but not as, I like that, not as a kind of a, by decentralising, so it's not saying we need everyone, you know, together, but we need to be, um, you know, to work together, but in kind of a decentralised way, by the same kind of ideas, by, um, I suppose, the free flow of, of exchange of ideas, by persuasion, by doing the right thing, rather than coercion, and so on. So in a different way to the way that the power structures of the world work. And I thought that was that was really insightful. And it made me think, you know, that you and me, you know, we are I'm, I'm here trying to 
put out the message on the podcast and you know I know that many of my uh, listeners here you know you're trying to do the same in your communities and uh, you know just engaging with people and that's what we need to be doing you know just um, showing people that there is a different way and being willing to to actually engage with people and being willing to stand up against uh, what's going on in the world and you know people do need do need leaders um, but you know we can I think we can help people just bit by bit you know just by continuing to stand up for what we believe is right and um, I think that's a that's a good thing to bear in mind so let's move on now to the main topic and I've called this today a world without emotion and um, I was thinking a little bit actually of that film from um, a few years ago Equilibrium I don't know if you um, ever saw that film with um, Christian Bale but it's kind of a dy- dystopian future after World War Three, where they they think that emotions were the cause of the you know everything bad that happened. Now the cause of the war it was because people had emotions, so everyone is then um, forced to take uh, powerful drugs which will block out emotions, and they have enforcers these so-called clerics who using violence will take out anyone who is a um well basically allows their emotions out anyone who refuses to take the drugs and and so on so they just want to stamp out all emotion and it's quite an interesting film i mean it's not not very highly rated apparently as i found uh, as i was looking it up um, just earlier but it's I thought it was quite an interesting film about, you know, what what life would be like if there was no emotion. Because I think that life would be would be very, very different. Um, But something which which is striking to me is the way that our world today seems to be different to the way that it was in a previous generation. And, you know, I think one of the ways that we can gauge whether something's wrong with the world today is actually by comparing what life is like now with the way that things were in the past so something which i found over the last um uh, week or so I've, I've been reading mansfield park by jane austen and uh, interestingly enough my, my wife has also been reading it too i say interestingly enough um, it, it was that's the reason that i'm reading it too she loves Jane Austen, and she's been a fan of Jane Austen since she was a you know teenager. Um, this is the first time I've read it. But what's been interesting is that we've both picked up on the same kind of thing, which is that the way that Jane Austen's characters uh, react to things and feel things is so much different than today, that there is real passion and emotion in the way that her characters actually act. And I think it's it's interesting looking back. I mean, this is going back, Jane Austen, you know, a couple of hundred years or, or give or take. But, um, you know, Jane Austen, um, that that was a long time ago, but still they, they felt things deeply. And, you know, you can see reading the books what we've lost, I think, that people just don't seem to, to act in that way anymore with that with that kind of passion. And I think you can even see this uh, more recently. Um, I, I wonder, to be honest, whether we ever really feel anything anymore. 
if you just compare what we are like now with how we were even 20 years ago. I was thinking about this with, um, I used to help in our, our old church with the um, the teenage the teenage group, the teenage um, secondary school age um, young people. And um, it, it's interesting to me comparing what most teenagers are like now with the way that they were even 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, there was the um, the stop the war march, you know, against the Iraq war. That was 2003 that that happened. So, yes, about 20 years ago. And a lot of uh, younger people, I mean, not just young people, but a lot of people f- from all over were uh, marching. And there was the biggest march in, in uh, London against the war. Huge protest. And um, Green Day did a song called Holiday, which was like a, a protest song against the war. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that, actually. I was listening to the song and thinking, you know, it's a really kind of, again, passionate song, you know, against against what they perceive to be uh, wrongdoing without going into the whole Iraq war thing at the moment. But you compare what what um, teenagers, or teenagers were like then with what they're like now, and they're just all on their phones, aren't they? You know, that the really teenagers are I just think the passion has been stripped away the emotion has been stripped away uh, and you can see it perhaps most of all in in teenagers because that's a uh, the time of life I suppose when you are dominated by emotions by you know the hormones and everything it's meant to be a kind of emotional time and yet for a lot of uh, young people I think they've just become sanitized and it's it's really interesting to me how this has happened. I think there are a lot of factors which have gone into this. Um, I think, you know, we have in a sense been inoculated against emotion, actually. Um, I think there have been, like I said, a lot of factors, one of them being technology. Um, I think social media gives the illusion of relationship while remaining distant so people post up pictures on instagram or facebook and they you know you can click like to like it but it's everything is sort of mediated by the screen isn't it you know it's not a real relationship everything is is through the screen and there's you know you don't really like things it's just just this constant stream of things which are mildly entertaining it's like a it's like a kind of drug which just keeps you at a certain level without any extremes you know it just um it's it sanitizes us and it, it enables things like armchair activism and virtue signaling so you know, rather than going on a march to stop the war and feeling you know passionately about justice and and all of that instead you just post a black square on instagram or post a picture frame on facebook or something like that it's it's not really activism it's just oh i've done my bit you know i've done my job i don't really have to care i just need to post a picture it it just makes it so easy that it makes it meaningless um and if you look at other places as well you know dating apps and these dating services online they just reduce people to superficial characteristics i was watching an interview the other day with louise perry who i've mentioned before and she wrote a very good book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. 
Um, but she was interviewed by John Anderson. And she was um, saying that, you know, in dating apps, for example, a woman might put, you know, she's a finds attractive a, a man who's over six foot. But she said, you know, if you met the right man, you know, it, that being over six foot might not actually matter. You know, that, that actually people are not reducible to a set of characteristics, to a set of, you know, your physical dimensions or or something like that. You can't reduce people that way. So the way that the, the internet and these dating apps work just reduce people um, rather than actually, you know, being a whole human being. It just, it's completely, um, just reduces people to a set of statistics. So again, you know, it's, it's rather than seeing someone as a whole person, maybe falling in love with someone, that it's just, well, I only find men over six feet attractive or, or something like that. You know, I only like brunettes or I only like blondes or, or whatever it might be. You know, it's it's really it just reduces everything about human beings. Um, and you couple that, and I mentioned music. I think music is actually a bigger thing than we give credit for. And I haven't really looked at music on this. I mean, I I love music to to listen to, um, but I I haven't really mentioned it on the podcast much. But I think it is interesting how a lot of modern pop songs are kind of superficial or cynical or nihilistic. I remember reading an article about this um, a few months ago, and I don't think I mentioned it, but it was talking about how a lot of pop songs just don't, you know, so negative now. And at Rick Beato, I don't know if you've come across him on YouTube, he has, um, you know, several million subscribers but he um often talks about modern music he's he was a former music producer and uh, he he kind of talks about how modern music is all awful um but how it's so kind of overproduced and you know that it's yeah i think is it any surprise that teenagers are not passionate when this is what they're listening to and of course, this is kind of, I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here. You know, they're not passionate because they're listening to emotionless music. There's emotionless music because people are growing up in that way. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. But but you know what I mean? The, the, the context of what young people listen to is not like, you know, Guns N' Roses where, you know, there was a, you know, there's a passion to, um, you know, it's kind of passion in music or or you know, the um, NWA, which were, you know, when back in the um, the 80s, you know, the rap, they wanted, you know, justice in the world. They was very concerned about that. It's it's just, music just doesn't care about anything or anyone now. It's all, it's all negative. It's nihilistic. It's, you know, doesn't even talk about love really anymore. And there are very few love stories. I was thinking about that. Um, uh, I can't remember recently with my wife. Um, we were watching something, and I thought you wouldn't you wouldn't see that these days. You know, just kind of a, a love story of people falling in love, and and you know, really, um, yeah, you, you hardly ever see that now in in TV, do you? And it made me think. You know, what do people really care about today? What are people really passionate about? Because the truth is, I don't think people really do care about very much in fact over the last few years the only thing that people have really cared about is something like safety uh, staying away from other people making sure that 
you know, we don't harm other people, but it's safety. That's what people seem to care about. And I thought, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? That safety seems to be the thing the thing now which we we really if if we're passionate about anything it's passionate about that that's like the number one thing but we're not passionate about other people we're not passionate about you know helping other people loving other people all of that sort of thing um if anything we're passionate about protecting other people by staying away from them uh, it's the whole thing has just become kind of inverted so why is it that emotions actually matter? Um, I've got a picture there of um, Mr. Spock from um, the original Star Trek. Of course, uh, Spock was a character who was um, famously the, the Vulcans, you know, the Vulcan race want, wanted to uh, do away with their emotions and act entirely logically. That was their... Um, the way they did things as a species they just wanted to act entirely logically um but were they onto something and i would say the problem with with that um, i mean obviously star star trek's its own sort of um its own world but in general i think acting logically and rationally you can act with logic and with with rationality uh, within the rules and still commit great evil you think about it that every dictator and tyrant in history has acted according to a kind of logic you know hitler was acting to a kind of logic uh, wasn't he even though it was a logic which was very wrong of course it was but there was a, you know there were reasons to what he did he didn't just act kind of randomly but there were reasons to what he did. And similarly, if you look at every murderous regime of the 20th century, they thought they were doing good, even if it was for uh, at the expense of human lives. But there was a greater good to which they were um, aspiring. Now, as the saying goes, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. So they thought, well, if we if we are creating a utopia here, then it doesn't matter if we have to mass murder you know, a few thousand people. It doesn't really matter if people starve. It doesn't really matter if we have to kill them because we're creating something which is going to be utopia. And so this is what they, this is what um, regimes did through the 20th century. And they were acting, you know, in, in a sense, rationally. Um, I mean, you could argue whether they were really acting rationally, but they were, they, there was a kind of logic to it even if it was fundamentally flawed and this is this is the thing that acting with kindness and acting with compassion is never or almost never the actual rational thing to do because who really wants to make themselves poorer and wants to make themselves you know wants to give up something of themselves in order to improve someone else's life is that really the rational thing to do um that you know reason being rational tends to be governed by self-interest that we need emotion to actually act according to what's in someone else's best interests 
And I think there is something so profound about that, you know, that rationality, when we when we are logical, when we are rational, we think about what's best for ourselves. But when we we feel, then we, we think about what's best for other people. And of course, we need those two things to be to be working together. But, you know, that reason without emotion tends to just think about ourselves. So what does the Bible say about emotion? This is um, quoting here from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, these I know will be familiar words to you. But it's I think it's it's absolutely worth and important to go back to this regularly. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says that love is the fulfilment of the law. Love is the fulfilment of the law. And this is something which I, I, I read these verses many times as, you know, um, well, through the course of my life. But I think the penny's only begun to drop more recently, which is Jesus is not saying uh, act in a way which is nice towards other people. But he's saying that we need there needs to be love. There needs to be something deeper than reason. There needs to be a, a feeling. And that is the thing, isn't it? That when we really love someone, then we'll really want the best for them. You think about, you know, young people falling in love and, you know, that, that actually wanting to to actually, you know, be with the other person, do what's right for them and, and so on, you know, see them see them flourish. Now, of course, this is not saying that, you know, Jesus is not saying we need to fall in love uh, like that, but that we do need. I, I think there is a, a you know, the, the, the feeling and the thinking need to come together, that the feeling is so important and you know wanting to do what's right you know we, we we only do that because we care and we only care because we feel for other people so i think that you know love is so important um we don't talk enough about it uh but that love is is the key really and you know i, I think the beatles when they said all you need is love I mean, I know it's a bit sentimental, the song, but I, th I think there is something in that, that, you know, love is actually the you know, true love, you know, real love, which comes from God, is actually what is what is needed. And it's more than just doing, acting kind of with pure logic, but it is actually feeling and caring for others. So how do things go bad? Why is it that we've ended up in this situation where people aren't loving and caring. And let me quote you from a, a psalm here, Psalm 115, verses 2 to 8. And I think I've quoted this psalm before, but again, it's, it's worth repeating. Why do the nations say, where is their God? 
Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. I think this is the great deception of trusting in idols, which is that those who make them, make idols, will become like them. What are idols? They are lifeless. They can't speak, they can't do anything, they can't act. And those who make them will become like them. And I think this is true, and I think this is what has happened over the last few years when it comes to COVID, that people have made an idol of safety and of the science and and technology and all of that. And people have ended up becoming like it, which is kind of lifeless and just acting towards each other like a computer. You know, perhaps with some kind of logic, but but no feeling. And I think this is what's happening. As we idolise technology, as we idolise safety, these things are, um, you know, we're becoming like them. And I think this psalm describes exactly what is happening. That you know, when we put something at the top where only God should go, then, you know, it, it displaces every, it makes everything else kind of fall out of shape and um yeah the the process is clear isn't it that once god is replaced with something lifeless that that substitution then affects us you know we are made to put god at the center and that's what gives us life and love and and you know everything good comes from that when god is displaced by something lifeless we become lifeless ourselves hugely um significant So um, I just got a, a couple of things to close with. Um, the first thing I wanted to finish with was a personal anecdote, which is a few years ago, while I was training at Theological College, um, you know, vicar, vicar school, as you might call it, um, there was an ongoing discussion which we would have occasionally, which was, should you befriend people in your congregation? You know, as a pastor, should you befriend people in the church? And it's interesting looking back at that discussion because I can't really believe we were having that discussion because it seems to me if I've learnt one thing from the last few years, it's that 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 should never be a question that, you know, of course you should befriend people because that's what it's all about. You know, that it's this idea that a pastor is a professional you know, one who just has sort of professional relationships with with people and keeps a professional distance and that their friendships and their actual relationships are kind of a separate thing. And I think you know, that's a terrible idea. That's an absolutely, that's a disaster. If pastors think that they should not be friends with people in the church, that's a disaster. You know, because... Literally, what does God want us to do? You know, you read through the read through the letters of Paul in the New Testament. It was dripping with love and, and care and compassion for people that Paul didn't maintain a professional distance. 
No, but he really cared. He cared deeply and intimately about the people that he was writing to. So I think this is this is the state that we're in. If even pastors in training can be asking the question, should we actually be friends with people? I think something is deeply wrong. Um, that the church should be doing better. And you know, as society we should be doing better, but the church in particular should be doing better. Um I mean, as with so many of the things on this on this podcast, um, and I'm talking about the problems in society, but really the problems in society are reflected in the church. And that's that's deeply uh, troubling. Let me uh, finish with a final or well, two final words. I read an article this last week. Um, Sinead O'Connor died and um, I read an article um, on the uh, Catholic Herald called Sinead O'Connor was failed by the church written by Catherine Bennett but um, there was one paragraph in, in the article which really struck me and it said this it seemed to me that Sinead O'Connor spent her life searching for love but was only ever deceived by a counterfeit false love false compassion will appease will leave people where they are and let them drown it is a comfortable lie Easy to say, easy to hear and easy to accept. Real love is a challenging truth, difficult to speak, difficult to hear and difficult to accept in our fallen world. But the end of one is death and at the end of the other is life. Oh, that's such a profound paragraph that, you know, false love, false compassion, it doesn't actually challenge people. It it just leaves people where they are. It just affirms them in whatever sinful path they're in and it doesn't speak to them the truth you know it just goes along with the narrative it just takes the path of least resistance real love doesn't do that because when we really love we'll want the best for someone and sometimes that will mean saying things that they don't want to hear pointing out things in their life which they don't want to see and and so on and so forth you know real love is disruptive but real love is what's healing Whereas fake love is not healing. And in fact, fake love, false love, leads to death. That's a huge... Um, well, obviously, that's the main thing, isn't it? What really leads to the path of life. And the path of life is real love. And unfortunately, that um, Sinead O'Connor... Uh, well, I think she, she was failed by the church. She didn't find that real love there. A final thing is um, just a short quote from Francis Schaeffer who said, love is the final apologetic. It may have been one of those quotes that sort of, he said similar things, I'm not quite sure if he said that exact phrase, but he said basically the same thing in the church at the end of the 20th century. Love is the final apologetic. And what he meant at the end of the day is that the church demonstrates that it is the church when there is real love. The church shows that it is the church when it has real love. And when we look at the church at the moment and we see a lack of love, what does that say about the genuineness of the church? Um, sadly, you know, we should expect a lack of love in society to some extent. But when the church is like this, that's a problem. And uh, we need to, I think, you know, given that we are living in days when uh, society seems to be going down this road of this sort of emotionless path, I think we as the church 
as Christians need to to step the other way and to be people who are passionate, you know, loving, passionate for love, passionate for God, passionate for doing what is right and for justice and for all of all of the things that we should be passionate for. And actually, at the end of the day, that's what will make the difference, because I think people can tell where real love is and people need it. And uh, as Francis Schaeffer said, that is what will will test the genuineness of our faith is the genuineness of the love so that's something that we we should be praying for i think and asking for god's help for that we would be able to to be genuine in the way that we love and uh, that that would show like a light in society so uh, yeah let's take a moment to pray and uh, you know especially with what we were that article i was saying the the panda article just about um you know uh being new sort of counter elites i suppose just that people would see where the love is and be drawn to that so let's let's pray heavenly father we recognize that we are living in a world where love seems to be growing cold and we pray lord that you would give love to our hearts that we might love you love our neighbors love our communities and that people would see where that love is and people will be drawn to you through it so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us not to act in a, a passionless way, but with real passion, with real love uh, for you and for others, and uh, to be drawn to do what is right, and that people would see and believe, um, and see that that love comes from you. So we just commit these things to you, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, everyone. Um, sorry that this is a bit of a shorter session. I don't think I was always very coherent, but I hope that that's giving you something to think about. Uh, you can join in the conversation on Telegram. Link is down below. You can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. You can leave a comment. And if you appreciate what I do, you can support me at Buy Me A Coffee and the link is down there as well. Thanks so much, everyone. I really do appreciate all of the engagement. Um, I may do a short podcast next week um, but uh, we are going away on holiday at the end of next week and uh, i may need to get ready so maybe just a short one um, I'll, I'll, I'll see about that but either way um, the week after i will be away so uh, i'll be either here next week briefly or maybe in um two two three weeks um, but anyway yeah look forward to seeing you again soon let me know and uh, god bless <laughs>